about what this looks like in real life. Facts do not have opinions. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Science is true whether or not you believe in it. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance. Welcome to The Whole View, episode 486, whereby it has been a time warp since 485 when we recorded part one of boosters and um, I'm not exactly sure. Are we calling it like children's vaccinations for COVID. We also have some questions related to pregnancy. And um, it's a good one because we've already recorded that last week when it was too long. So we split it up for you. But I can tell you, it's going to be good. (laughs) I am so grateful that we decided to record both of them last week. And we did that because we knew we were both getting our boosters in between. Um, So it's kind of fun to be able to record this intro for you, having had the experience of the boosters that we can share as we continue our science conversation about the boosters and vaccines for kids. But I'm I'm personally very grateful that I don't need to think hard <laughs> and communicate effectively right now because I'm still having a little bit of, of brain fog and fatigue and still some joint pain as my lingering symptoms that I expect to stay with me for at least a few more days, sort of gradually getting better every day because that was very similar. I had a very similar third shot experience to my second shot with a few notable differences that made the third shot definitely better. Um, but overall, the the intensity of of symptoms was was comparable. And I, I think it's helpful to compare and contrast our experiences because you had a much easier time of, of your booster shot, at least thus far. I'm going to knock on wood for you. Um, where's wood? Where's wood? Hang on. There we go. <laughs> yeah. It's been, um, 21 hours and I feel okay. I'm going to walk knock on wood myself, but um, I don't think it's really about superstition. I think it's really because my body has been exposed four times and um, I'm really fortunate that I never really had a fever. Even when I had COVID the first time, I only had one day with a low grade fever. And um, so I didn't have a fever with boosters, which is bizarre because I think I've talked before on the show about how as a child... I um, was prone to fevers, like really high fevers. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm just having what feels like a hangover, you know, like I'm sore and I'm a little groggy and I'm tired, but I'm functioning. I'm working, (laughs) you know, I'm here on the podcast and um, I plan to rest and I did all the things we're going to talk about um, towards the end of the show to if this is something that you decide to do. We're not here to tell you what to do or to pressure you in any sort of way. Um, we're just telling you the conclusion that we each came to and we talk more about that in the Patreon if you want to listen to that after the show. Um, but I think for me, you know, I even though I've had it, what the science is learning is that because there are so many variants, um, especially with Omicron 
it seems that people who had it before but didn't get the vaccine were getting it again. Um, and so no, thank you. <laughs> I, would yeah. not, I would not like to have it again. Um, and uh, it was definitely a decision that, you know, after you've uh, been fighting long haulers for a year and a half, you're like, nope, nope, don't want, don't want to start that cycle again. So um, I'm hopeful that, you know, it has gotten better for me over the last couple of months. Um, there wasn't like a magic moment where I was like, oh, I feel better. But I find myself, you know, struggling to find the words um, or feeling really foggy less and less over time, which I'm, you know, it could just be taking time to get out of my system. It could also be the vaccine helping. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm hopeful that given how relatively good I feel today, um, that that you know, can only be good things for what it might mean for my long-term health. Please, please. Now I'm walking, knocking on wood and crossing all fingers <laughs> and like doing everything. So um, I know we have a lot to get into and we're going to kick it off with some questions, but I just want to remind you listeners that our approach is to always um, use the science. Sarah has done a ton of research. This is a continuation of last week's episode, part one, which is, I think, 47 in our series of COVID. No, it's not that many, but approximately. Yeah. If you're listening to this for the first time, I would recommend definitely go back at least to listen to part one, because we do give a recap of the shows that we've done previously, um, and you can get caught up a bit. So this is part two of that. And again, sorry, just want to thank you for all of your research and putting this together so that people can be empowered and informed and make the decisions that they need to make with their doctor because we are not medical professionals and we are not giving medical advice. We are just sharing the research, the facts, the science, and um, it does not have an opinion. This is something that um, I can tell you for sure is that facts do not care if you have an opinion. They are facts in and of themselves. And it's been really helpful for me to process that as we go through um, this series in particular. Yeah. And I think as we, as we are going to get into the science, you know, my, my last little take home message having, you know, again, I had a definitely grade three side effects, which I think we talk about in more depth in this show, what that means. It means really miserable, but not bad enough to get medical attention. Um, I had grade three side effects from the the second and the, the third shot and spent a couple of days in bed, really, um, you know, very high fever, extreme fatigue, um, really bad joint pain, a very, very sore arm this time, which I did not have with the first two. Um, Same. I, my arm is more sore this time than yeah, the other my, times. My arm was by far the most the most sore this time, and but that, I didn't have the muscle that'll pain. That'll take any day. You know what yeah. I mean? Like sore arm, I can deal with. Oh, I, a sore arm was a good trade to not have the muscle pain for, from the third shot, which I had from the second, because it meant I could I could nap, which made the entire experience much more tolerable. Um, that and my my favorite ever movie um, came out the day before, so I just got to watch that over and over again for the whole weekend. So that also made it a wonderful experience. Um, so it was it was you know it was miserable. It was really intense. Uh, my husband kept saying, "You're not making this look like fun," and I said, "But I'm making antibodies," and I I want to share that with our audience because you you're feeling you know, a little bit crummy today, but overall, you know, functional. 
and I was not functional for a couple of days. I didn't work for, for, this is my first day working. Um, so I, I took three days off to just rest and chill out and, you know, a little bit, right. Moved from the bed to the couch, right. Like, you know, a little bit more upright each day. Um, but it was knowing that it's self-limiting, knowing that the trade-off is a huge boost in immunity. Like that to me, it was a hundred percent worth it for me. I said after the second shot, it was super intense, but I would do it again. And I did, and I did it again and it was super intense and I would still do it again if, if it became necessary and the science showed that it was a, a good idea. So I want to lead into our continued conversation on the mix and match studies and the, the, um, data on vaccine for children's age five to 11 with that bit of, of personal experience of, yep, it was, it was not that dissimilar from the second shot. I went through it a little bit faster, which was good. So not having the muscle pain for the third shot made a huge difference. I also went through the intense part a little bit faster with the third shot, which was also fantastic. Um, but you know, having had definitely on the, uh, not as fun side of the spectrum in terms of side effects, I just recommend planning ahead. And that's something that I know because we've already recorded the rest of the show that we wrap up our conversation. This episode with is what we did to prepare. And, um, and those were all the right things. I cleared my schedule. I had leftovers in the fridge. I had figured out, you know, what could be taken off my plate so that I didn't need to worry about it over the weekend. And that is, that is a hundred percent my recommendation because for me, this was, completely worth it. It was completely worth it. So I just kind of wanted to introduce our conversation of the science with that bit of personal experience. And also, you know, I've talked with more and more people now who basically have said the third shot felt very much like their second and on the whole side of the spectrum from very mild. I had almost nothing with the second. I had almost nothing with the third to, yep, the second was a wild ride. The third was also a wild ride. Um, so whatever your experience was with the second shot, um, that is probably a a good starting place for, for an expectation for the booster and just think ahead to what would have made that easier for you if you'd had something that you didn't have back then, or what did you do for the second shot that you want to do again? Um, and that, that was for me, the, the big, the, the big difference, um, was, knowing a little bit better what to expect, having gone through it one time. It just made it a little bit, um, it made it a little bit easier because all in all of the ways that it was marginally better, I super appreciated having had the expectation of it being closer to the second shot. So we had more questions related to boosters that we didn't get to last week. And actually even Kate's question that we were focusing on last week um, I think it's helpful to, to actually dive into a little bit more detail about the mix and match studies, which we talked about last week, but we can talk about even more this week. But the the first question, I think, as we're talking about booster efficacy and safety, which we did cover in depth last week, is a question from Saiba, who asked, I am wondering if there is any information around boosters for pregnant or breastfeeding moms. And the answer is... Uh, yes, 
there is. So we actually discussed in episode 443 that pregnant people are at much higher risk for severe disease, death, and pregnancy complications if they get infected with COVID-19 than their age-matched, health-matched, non-pregnant controls. So again, we talked about that in depth in episode 443, but briefly, pregnant people are overall three to three and a half times more likely to require ventilation and about 70% more likely to die from COVID-19. And uh, it's even worse for um pregnant people of advanced age, so ages 35 to 44, with COVID-19, we're nearly four times more likely to require ventilation and twice as likely to die than non-pregnant people of the same age. Although absolute risk is still still low. So uh, that, I mean, keep in mind, let's absolute risk is still low. Um, and then in episode 455, we discussed actually in detail that the vaccines had been shown to be safe for pregnant and lactating women. And beyond that, there was some really good news that um, showed that the antibodies being produced were being passed on to baby either in utero or through breast milk. And so that data altogether shows that getting vaccinated is important for both parent and child. And uh, the FDA has reviewed all of the safety data on the vaccines in pregnancy and have approved the boosters for pregnant people based on all of that safety data. So the answer is, if you're more than six months from your second dose, uh, if you got an mRNA vaccine series or from your first dose of J&J, Again, because of the protection afforded to you as a pregnant person and to baby, um, it is a worthwhile thing to consider. And if you're unsure, again, as always, we recommend talking to your doctor. I am a total nerd about breast milk. Um, this might come as a shock if you haven't listened to some of our earlier shows. It's not shows. surprising to me at all. No, not at all. <laughs> um, but I... For reference, I was either pregnant or breastfeeding for a decade straight. I was a La Leche League leader. Um, and uh, I, you know, understand and there's no judgment on my part for those who either choose or cannot breastfeed. I will say my sister who had a baby last year, um, there wasn't information out at the time yet about pregnant people with vaccines when she was pregnant, but she got the vaccine after the baby was born and she was still breastfeeding. And it is one of the reasons that she decided to breastfeed longer so that she could get her second shot and pass on full immunity to my baby nephew. So like this is this is a magical thing about breast milk that we've known for a really long time. Um, so if you are a breastfeeding mom, like for me, I would be so jazzed because otherwise there isn't a vaccine yet for babies, right? So yeah. um I have a friend who's been putting breast milk in her older child's um, sippy cup mm. in order to, because she's she's breastfeeding for their, their new baby, mm -hmm. um, but she's been actually pa trying to pass on the antibodies to their older, older child who's still, uh, you know, two years old um, in order to, to provide those antibodies. And I, I think that's, that's brilliant. Totally. So, yeah. I'm like... 
a cow. I, I lactate a lot. I donated breast milk when I was nursing before. And it's, it's like almost enough, like the magic of breast milk and how amazing it is, um, is almost enough to make me like, there's medicine you can take to like relactate and stuff. I'm like, maybe I should relactate and donate my milk. No, I've got a little few too many things going on. But, (laughs) um, if I were in the position, I absolutely would just because I think that, um, it is the science on breast milk is just incredibly cool. So, um, yeah. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox on that, but I'm really glad that the science um, is showing the um, safety and the, you know, the testing and all of that kind of stuff. And I hope that it gives comfort to moms because I know the last thing you want to do is risk anything to this precious child. Um, but uh, just from, you know, my own sister's experience and that sort of thing, um Two thumbs up over here. If you could see me, I'm making like the biggest goofy nerd face with literal two thumbs up. Like, you know, go babies. <laughs> go go moms. Go babies. I'm totally picturing that yeah, right it's, now. It's, it's, that's I am fantastic. such a nerd. I don't, I, that's why we get you know, along. when I retire, that's what I want to do. I want to like be a doula and, and help ladies breastfeed. Like that's my, that's my happy place. I just, I love babies and. Okay, we're gonna have to change subjects. <laughs> Moving on to <laughs> things you're nerdy about, um, right? Mixing and matching. So I think this is um, especially important to like Kate's original question, right? Which is the um, Johnson and Johnson vaccine. So for example, you know, if you had the Moderna vaccine, it's not difficult for you to get, you know, a second second shot. And that's silly second, to say. Second but, shot? Do you mean the right? third shot? Isn't yeah. that? But isn't that essentially what? what we're talking about anyway when we say booster um maybe you can Mm -hmm. explain it to me since clearly all I can do is talk about breast milk today (laughs) (laughs) um yeah so the mix and match study was fascinating I have examined these graphs for literally hours because I find them so interesting so again I guess this is something I'm really nerdy about. So what they did was they took people who had had any of the Johnson and Johnson, Janssen adenovirus vector vaccine, the Moderna mRNA vector vaccine, or the Pfizer BioNTech uh, mRNA vaccine. And then they gave them randomized one of a different vaccine for a, a booster for a third shot. In the case of J and J, it was a second shot booster. And so, and including homologous, so um, getting the same thing. So they got, uh, so they were able to compare people who got the whole series of each one of those three versus mixing and matching. And just starting from an efficacy standpoint, I think this data is really fascinating. Um, And what it shows is that if you got an adenovirus vector first, uh, if you're outside of America and you got AstraZeneca, this would apply to you too. So if you got your two shots of the AstraZeneca University of Oxford, um, adenovirus vector vaccine, or if in your, in America and you got the one shot of J and J, your boost getting an MRNA vaccine, whether it's Pfizer or Moderna is much higher than sticking with an adenovirus vector vaccine. And we talked about, the adenovirus vector vaccines on the show before and why the adenoviruses with each subsequent exposure to the same 
adenovirus vector can have a reduced efficacy because the immune system recognizes the vector, which is not something that's happening with the lipid nanoparticle envelopes around the mRNA strands in the mRNA vector vaccines. So it's kind of something that you would expect. There's only so many times that you can be exposed to the same adenovirus, especially in a within, you know, in this case, within a few months before the immune system recognizes the vector and basically destroys it before it can deliver its little code for uh, the spike protein. So if you got an adenovirus vector vaccine for your first course, you're going to get a bigger boost in antibody production from getting an mRNA vector vaccine. And the difference between Moderna or, or Pfizer is marginal. It's not statistically significant. So it, it really doesn't matter which one at that point. On the other side of the coin, if you got a mRNA vaccine for your first course, you're getting a pretty equivalent boost, basically no matter what you get. So if you started with mRNA, you boost with another mRNA virus, um, mRNA vector vaccine or an adenovirus vector vaccine, you're getting a very comparable boost from that. So the thing, the the only mix and match that you don't want to do is homologous adenovirus vector. So either uh, either sticking with the mRNA um, vector vaccine that you got the first time or switching to the other one, um, or if you got mRNA vaccine the first time, you could get a boost with Johnson & Johnson, or uh, if you're in a country that has the AstraZeneca with AstraZeneca, the differences are pretty small compared to um, compared to the each other, right? So the differences in, in how much your your antibody titers will increase, it's p- pretty much all in the noise. So though I know people are going to say, but it's a marginal difference, but marginal, I want to know what's best. And I, again, have examined these graphs for many, many hours because I personally, we've talked about on the show before, I'm a fairly risk averse person and I uh, really, really, really don't want to get COVID-19. And I looked at these graphs and I went, what, what I, even if it's not statistically significant, looking at you know, looking at all the all the data, what is what is the one that's going to give me the biggest boost? So, if you had um, an mRNA vaccine the first time, again, there's not a huge difference, but Moderna wins by a very marginal, not statistically different amount, followed by Pfizer, followed by J and J. So, my my plan looking at this data. Um, again, we're recording this part of the podcast before I get the booster, um, but I am booked for a Moderna booster after getting Moderna for the first course. Um, even though, as we get into the side effect data, I can predict <laughs> based on the study that also uh, that will translate to the most unpleasant side effects. I am totally prepared for that. Funnily enough, you've all listened to my experience on the booster and you know how I feel about it after the fact. But how I feel now, before the fact, is uh, it's a trade I am I am absolutely willing to make. I feel like we always need one of those doodle loop doodle loop when, <laughs> when we do these time warp recordings, and also 
just the authenticity of us actually recording each week, which we tell people we do and most podcasts do not, like, you know, here you go. So um, you can see that it's, it is as we say it is. Um, We are all about transparency and honesty and all that kind of good stuff. This show is sponsored by Raycon, and boy, have I never gotten more clout with my kids. They are obsessed with the wireless earbuds. I had them help me test them, and all of them have asked for a pair for the holidays. I can totally see that being a thing. No, seriously, Cole straight up lost his earbuds like uh, about two weeks ago and asked Matt if he could have the Raycons because he knew that Matt had his own pair before he took the Raycons, and Matt straight up told him, No. And he made Cole buy him (laughs) his own pair with his own money. Uh, But he did use our code. So at least there's that. Um, Matt said that he's tried so many. He's gone through so many brands. He works all day outdoors, sweating in the wind, moving his head around a lot, loves listening to podcasts while sorting mail. And the everyday earbuds are about half the size of the ones he used to use. The case is small enough for his key pocket, which is he has so many things in his pocket. Why? I guess because men don't have a purse. I don't know. Um, but he loves that it fits in the key pocket. Um, and when he, you know, moves around a lot, they don't move. Somehow, magically, they're smaller but still noise isolating and uh, block out the super loud noise of the warehouse. I mean, I wholeheartedly agree. I use mine all the time. They're really comfortable and the audio quality is amazing, comparable to what you would get from other premium brands, except Raycon starts at half the price. I think it's super cool that the new Everyday Earbuds come with three sound profiles to make sure everything you're listening to sounds its best with just the right amount of bass. So pure mode, podcast listening, blues, instrumental, things like that, bass mode for like hip hop, reggae, and balanced mode for rock heavy metal, or maybe podcasts not as balanced as ours. <laughs> Raycon offers eight hours of playtime and 32-hour battery life. There's also a built-in microphone, so you can take calls on your earbuds at the press of a button, like when you're carrying groceries or on a long walk with the dog on the leash and don't want to have to take your phone out. They would make an awesome gift, as evidenced by all of my children asking for them. You can go to buyraycon.com slash wholeview today to unlock exclusive deals up to 20% off your Raycon order. But hurry, this offer is only available for a limited time and you don't want to miss it. That's buyraycon.com slash wholeview to unlock up to 20% off your Raycons. Buyraycon.com slash wholeview. Today's podcast is brought to you by KiwiCo. Such a fun family gift for the holidays. Our kids loved the ones we've done so far. We got one for each of them under the tree already, and I totally used our 50% off code. That's awesome. I love KiwiCo. We have been fans for years, and I am so excited we get to share them with you listeners. My girls loved to craft, build, just about any STEM activities, so these boxes are always perfect. My whole family knows they can never go wrong with KiwiCo for the girls and David and I, if I'm being honest, you could give a subscription and celebrate a love for hands-on learning all year long. Plus there's no commitment. So you can pause or cancel anytime. 
I love that there are so many options, and I was sincerely surprised at the quality. We built a STEM stereo headset that Wes took to school to show off, and it's held up. That's impressive. Like, seriously. But he was so excited to take it to school and show people that he built it himself. I've always been impressed with how quality the materials are, too. And everything you need is in the box. We've done dozens of different kits over the years, and they've all been amazing. Actually, my youngest daughter's room is basically like decorated in Kiwico projects, mostly from the Tinker Crate line. But the most recent one we built was the walking robot, which is actually how Mira entertained herself this weekend. The best part, other than the fun, enriching activity of building it, of course, was watching the dog try to play with it while I was walking around on the living room Oh my floor. gosh, was she, I would have been like, don't touch that. Like... She was the little bit scared, so she was just jumping around and barking at it. So it was perfect. The the robot is still intact. That's good. Yeah, I I can imagine. Uh, Penny does that with the vacuum, but she does try to attack it and bite at it and stuff. So it'd be interesting to see how she'd react. Um, If you're like me with broody teens who act like you're pulling teeth to participate in anything, unlike Sarah's perfectly behaved children, honestly, I highly suggest you give it a try. I was surprised how much my kids engaged with their boxes. Your child can get super cool hands-on science, art, and geography projects delivered to their door every month. There's truly something for kids of all ages. KiwiCo has eight lines underneath its umbrella for kids age 0 to 104. For example, the Panda Crate, ages 0 to 24 months, was developed in partnership with Seattle Children's Hospital and delivers age-appropriate hands-on projects. Then the play-based learning boxes for toddlers, a super cool Atlas Crate, ages 6 to 11. It sparks a sense of adventure and curiosity. That would be so fun if you were going to go on like a family trip this year to gift that as like the thing we're going to do. Um, and then for teens and tweens, you have the Doodle, the Tinker, the Eureka, and Maker Crates, aging in ranges from 9 to 104, and helps to discover science, math, engineering, and awesome things they'll love and use every day. This holiday season, give the gift of a fun, hands-on holiday experience with KiwiCo. Get 50% off your first month plus free shipping on any crate line with code WHOLEVIEW at KiwiCo.com. That's 50% off your first month at K-I-W-I-C-O.com, promo WHOLEVIEW. It's interesting that you mentioned that the side effects are strongest with a, a ma- the Moderna, mm-hmm. um, but also the most efficient. And of course, the like, the logical person, my logic brain is like, hmm, is that because it's, you know, creating a stronger antibody and a more exposure, whatever that's, you know, who knows. But um, from a side effect standpoint, if, for example, someone had the Johnson and Johnson like Kate and is worried about reducing side effects as much as possible, but also, you know, still want efficacy, is there research to suggest what might be the best case scenario for side effects versus knowing that the Moderna is going to have the worst side effects? Yeah, so I I really wanted to present this data both from an efficacy standpoint and from a side effect standpoint because I think both calculuses, calculi, are completely valid. So my calculus in choosing which booster to get was like, I know how bad my side effects were and I'm willing to go through that again. I want the biggest boost. 
But Kate's side effects were worse than mine. And maybe Kate would like the lowest frequency of grade two and grade three side effects option. And that would be Pfizer. So Pfizer in this mix and match study had the lowest frequency of the more severe range of the side effects. So it's obviously no guarantee, but if you had really bad side effects from the first series, especially if that first series was not Pfizer, uh, Pfizer would then be the logical choice to avoid, at least to reduce risk of more severe side effects. So what they, they showed is if you had, um, a, uh, if you had a a adenovirus vector. So in this case, they were looking at the Johnson and Johnson adenovirus vector vaccine for the first time. Your again lowest rate of side effects were um, were Pfizer, but Moderna wasn't too too bad either. If you had Moderna for your first one, uh, your lowest rate of side effects was Pfizer, followed by actually the Moderna versus boosting with uh, antivirus, the side effects look fairly similar. The risk of a grade three side effect, which means the super miserable one, were a little bit higher staying with Moderna. And then if you had Pfizer for your first uh, your first go around, sticking with Pfizer is the lowest risk of, of side effects. Again, Pfizer kind of wins across the board as a booster from a side effect standpoint, uh, then followed by J and J and then followed by Moderna. So you would, you would basically take all that data and go on average, Moderna is the worst side effects. J and J is in the middle and Pfizer is the lowest frequency of, of bad side effects for a not statistically different, um, difference in antibody production. So, um, Again, I, I looked at the averages and I went for the higher higher average boost, even though it's not statistically significant. Um, so my my argument is not necessarily backed up with statistics because it's not statistically significant. I'm just looking for, again, I, I want the best possible uh, immune protection that I can have. Um, but Kate may want to take a different approach and go for the lowest risk of side effects, in which case, um, Kate's best option would be Pfizer. But I also recommend that Kate talk to her doctor, um, in making that and making that decision because, um, her doctor might know something that we don't and might have some other really great advice. So again, um, I think it's really helpful to remember that we're just talking about you know, averages from big studies. And um, that's different than what a doctor can tell you, knowing your health history and your specific concerns. Agreed. And definitely, you know, doing those prep and take care of yourself things that we talked about in the last show. I know um, taking, uh, being hydrated was something that they mentioned at the vaccine site itself, the fir- like the very first shot that I got, the woman was like, make sure that you are very hydrated to reduce the symptoms. So um, the more we can, you know, support our body's own immune response, the better. Okay, are we ready to move on? Yeah, kids, we just did like a show and a half on boosters. <laughs> All right, let's Let's di- I know this is a this is going to be a doozy. So, yeah. let's dive in. 
So we have a question from Jacqueline, who is one of our patrons over on Patreon. Pa patrons over on Patreon? She's one of our Patreon fam. That is, that is, I, I A community I member. There we go. Um, and Jacqueline wrote, Dear Dr. Sarah and Stacy, I love your show. I've been listening for about two years now and I've listened to so many of your shows multiple times, plus many of your archives. And I love Patreon and the inside scoop over here. I'm sure you're really hoping not to do any more COVID shows, and I totally appreciate that. However, I trust your analysis of the science so much that I was really hoping to hear about the vaccine for kids. What is the science saying so far? I'd like to hear the science as well as your opinion as a mom regarding the benefits and safety, please. I look forward to learning more and appreciate your show for the factual scientific evidence it brings on things health all things health and nutrition related. Thanks for all the work you do to bring this show to us each week. I'm a dedicated and avid fan. And always look forward to each new release. Sincerely, Jacqueline. This is such a nice show. And also, shout out. Um, but at the same time, I feel like I do need to say to Jacqueline, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry that you've been listening to so many of our shows multiple times. I literally like put my hand on my face when she said multiple times. I was like, oh, oh, God. Um, but that's just my own uncomfort with compliments. So thank you very much. I'm learning that this is a trauma response and my perfectionism. <laughs> I'm learning many things about myself. So I'm trying really hard to just like, okay, thank you. I'm glad that you're enjoying the shows. Um, but yes, we, uh, for those listeners who don't know, are both moms. I have three biological children as well as a foster child. And the reason I specify that is because I am not their legal guardian, so I cannot make medical decisions for them. Um, and then Sarah is the mom of two. Uh, one of my children was not eligible for the youngest grouping of vaccines, right? He is 11. Um, and my other children fall into the category that have had um, the vaccine available to, to them for quite a while, all within the uh, 13 to 16 range. I forget what the cutoffs are, but my children are those ages for perspective as we talk about this. Yeah, so I have a not a 14-year-old who was able to get vaccinated in the summer when it was approved for 12 to 16-year-olds and my youngest actually turned 12 in between her first two doses or in between her two doses. So she got a pediatric dose when she was 11 and then she got an adult dose after she turned 12. Um so uh that was uh, an interesting, uh, an interesting ex experiment because that's um, not something that, uh, for example, the computer system at the place where we went was able to compute. Uh, so, um, so, but she's she was fine. She she had um, very mild side effects from from both. So about both my kids had very mild side effects. But that's our personal experience, which is not what this show is about. This show is about the science and what the phase two, three clinical trial for five to 11 year olds showed. So right now, um, Pfizer is the uh, only vaccine that is available for between five and six, five and 17 year olds. So Moderna is approved for 18 and over. Pfizer initially was approved for 16 and over. Then they extended their approval for 12 uh, down to 12 years old, and now they've extended their approval down to five years old. 
So that represents three different studies. Their original studies were done in 16 and over, then uh, 12 to 15, then 5 to 11. And what they did in the 5 to 11-year-olds, and this will is done even more so in the younger age group because they are working on a six-month-old to five-year-old uh, vaccine as well. That that trial is is now ongoing. Um, they start with a dose response, and this is because there are kids. Caution is the better part of valor. So what they did, the adult dose of Pfizer is 30 micrograms of mRNA encapsulated in a lipid nanoparticle. And what they did for the 5 to 11-year-olds is they tested uh, 10 micrograms, 20 micrograms, and 30 micrograms. And they looked at what was called the reactogenicity profile and the immunogenicity profile. So they basically looked at side effects and the antibody titers that were being produced um, as a result. And out of that data, they decided to select the 10 microgram dose for kids for their ongoing trial um, because it still had a really robust uh, response in terms of, of antibodies and had much lower side effects. So the, the side effects were... Um, they were also pretty low for the 20 microgram dose. Um, but when they sort of looked at, especially that second dose at 10 micrograms, the, the side effects are really, really minor. Um, whereas in that, you know, also keep in mind, these are smaller bodies, right? So the 30 microgram dose in five to 11 year olds, for example, after that second dose, a hundred percent of the kids had fever and fatigue um, at that higher dose with the 10 microgram dose, which is what is actually approved only 12.5% had a fever, 68.8% had fatigue, 50% had headaches, 30% had chills. Those are pretty similar to, um, it with, to the adult uh, side effects from, from Pfizer. Again, Pfizer, the Pfizer side effect profile is the most favorable side effect profile of any of the vaccines out there. So Pfizer went, look, looked at that data, said, look, lower side effects, but we're still getting a great antibody response. This is going to be our dose. So then they moved on to the uh, safety and efficacy part of the trial, which included a larger um, a larger group of, of 5 to 11-year-olds. And they, again, sort of looked at uh, side effects. The side effect profile was, again, what you, what you would expect. And they looked at um, all of the the safety data that they have been collecting, right? They're looking at everything. Every single thing that is not even necessarily medically relevant is being recorded in these studies. So they have tables of, you know, how many kids broke a leg um, it, during the, the study trial. And I, I think it's pretty hard to make a case that uh, breaking a leg is related to, to a vaccine. But every single one of those things is reported in the and tracked in these studies. They did three months of follow-up after the second dose, which is actually longer than the original um, study was in adults. And again, it's because um, it is in everyone's interest to be incredibly cautious and really make sure that the vaccine is safe before applying for uh, approval. So what they were able to show is that there were no serious adverse events reported. 
there were no cases of myocarditis um, observed in that uh, vaccination period in that three month follow up, which is the the range of time that you would expect it to show up, um, and that is likely attributable to the lower dose. They would have expected actually to have seen probably one case based on their their study size. Again, as we talked about last week, this is why community uh, monitoring is also performed because the really, really rare adverse events sometimes don't show up until there's many millions of doses being given out. If you're talking about a one in a million type adverse effect, you don't expect those to show up in, uh, in the clinical trials, but it's important to know that, um, that the, again, like we talked about last week, the myocarditis risk, at least in the 12 to 25 year olds that has been studied is a higher risk from COVID-19 infection than it is from the vaccines. So I just wanted to, to reiterate that. And one of the things that made this clinical trial um, easier is not the word that I'm actually looking for, but because it was done at a time when cases were spiking, it's it's faster to get efficacy data in that type of case. Um, so this was actually at a time when Delta was the dominant strain and they showed that the efficacy of the vaccine was 90.7% against symptomatic disease. So recall that the efficacy for adults uh, against symptomatic infection for the Delta variant was maybe more like 65%. Um, so 90.7% is excellent efficacy. There were no cases of severe COVID-19 cases in their uh, vaccinated group and no cases of the multi-inflammatory syndrome due to COVID, the, the MISC um, uh, syndrome that has been affecting kids um, as well. So uh, the data looks excellent. The data looks ex exactly the procedures that you would hope that they would follow to, to be really extra cautious, to ensure safety, and the the safety profile looks uh, just as good, if not better, than it does in in the older kids and adults. And the efficacy looks outstanding, and probably because those kids have such robust immune systems, just from being exposed to so many things already, um, that they've they've got a, a really great young, healthy immune system for learning from a vaccine how to not get COVID. It's fascinating to me how um, those like reactions that they were seeing in the children and the dosage, right? Because I also think of like my 11 year old child and how big he was at like six years old and how different that is, right? Like that seems mm -hmm. like such a big difference for me, but that they're able to do these studies and to figure that out. Um, I will, you know, share that, my 11-year-old did get his first dose of um, the Pfizer. That's the only one that's available for kids. Yeah. Um, and the only side effect he had was a sore arm. And my gosh, did he play into that. And <laughs> like his older siblings were all rolling their eyes like, bro, you haven't even had the second dose yet. Like, 
Um, but he was definitely milking that the sympathy, like, oh, I can't unload the dishwasher. My arm is sore. I'm like, okay. Good for um, him. I'm proud. I'm proud. <laughs> That's so good. Um, um, but again, this is a decision that we made based on, you know, the information that's available about the safety and also, you know, our health decisions as a family um, in terms of, you know, risks and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, I know we we share our personal decisions, but this is not to tell anybody else what to do. I, I love that. Sarah, your approach is always just to share the research and the science. We've also talked about the risks both in the last show as well as earlier shows. And that's something that a medical professional needs to discuss with a family if you're concerned, you know, about risks for children. I know for me, I happen to live in an area where the vast majority of children are vaccinated and we're very fortunate to feel safe sending our children to school because of that high percentage. And I think, you know, relative to where you are in the life you live and the risk for your children and all these kinds of things are are important to making your own decisions when you're empowered with information, which is what we're trying to do here. Um, and I know, Sarah, you already mentioned your girls being vaccinated. Yeah. So Adele, my oldest, had the mildest side effects of anyone in the house. I mean, and she actually had a slightly more sore arm from the first dose than the second dose. She had almost nothing from the second dose. I mean, she was she was just fine. Um, and Mira had a little bit more. She had almost nothing from the first dose. And again, I mean, she kind of had this weird, you know, turned 12 in between and qualified for the adult dose for her second. So we don't know how much of having more side effects from the second dose was related to the dose being bigger or just being the second side of, you know, the second dose, or just she maybe inherited a different set of immune genes from her parents. Right. So we have no idea, but she did have more, like she was really tired for two days um, and had a headache the first day. So she, you know, she was a little, a little bit more, but in the grand scheme of things, very, very mild side effects. Um, and she, you know, when it, once it, it just kind of like turned off. Like it was like all of a sudden she was like, Oh yeah, I'm great. I'm going to go do some homework now. Like it was, she was just fine. Um, and then, you know, my husband again sort of had, he had not much from the first dose a day feeling pretty miserable in bed from the second dose. And then I, I, uh, I win in my family. I win for side effects. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't call that winning. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got to freeze it in a positive way somehow. I'm again, you know, my, my feeling on this, uh, has, has been, um, uh, this is the side effects is a trade I am a hundred percent willing to make and will make again. And, um, and especially when the it's for me with, with COVID-19 and again, we've talked about on the show many times that I am a risk averse person and that is my own, you know, cost benefit analysis when it comes to COVID-19 but the thing that I find scary personally is not necessarily, you know, fear of dying or, or being on a ventilator for months, although that's, you know, clearly a risk for, for all of us. Um, but my, my fear is, as somebody with already four autoimmune diseases, is long COVID as a potentially newly uh, cr created a new autoimmune disease that didn't exist before. 
um, or at least potentially a subset of people. It's a, an autoimmune disease. It might be persistent infection in others. Um, and, uh, and the other types of long-term damage, right? So there's, you know, the microclots, the higher risk of stroke, the pulmonary embolisms, the kidney damage, the heart damage, the lung damage. Those are the things that I have found for me are, are the things I am averse to, the things that I am trying to avoid. And, uh, you know, spending a few days in bed. This might be really hilarious after our intro. So who knows what actually happened after my third shot? But that to me is um, is is a perfectly good trade. I mean, for me, the second shot certainly felt like a really bad flu for a couple of days, um, and also knowing that it's going to be self-limiting and it's not like an act- actual flu that could last seven to fourteen days. It felt I felt. Um, I felt comfort in knowing that that was just my immune system doing what it was supposed to do. And, uh, and so for me, side effects are, yeah, I mean, obviously it would be better if there were no side effects, but I'll take the side effects for, for the efficacy. That's, that's my, that's my own risk analysis because, uh, COVID-19 is not cool. I love that you're like, you know, I'm not afraid of the dying part. I'm afraid of having what Stacy has. Yes. <laughs> okay. That's. Thanks. thanks. Yeah. Thanks so much. Well, well, you uh, know what? It probably um, doesn't help that I talk about it all the time, not just on the podcast, <laughs> but like with you and sending articles and trying to troubleshoot would, it, you know? I would say a full quarter of the texts you send to me are <laughs> related to long COVID these days. Um uh, of of like initial texts in in brand new conversations. Yes. Obviously not every single conversation, yes. but um, but I mean, and you've had a in the spectrum of long COVID symptoms a fairly mild case, yeah. and it yeah from for me as an observer it doesn't look like something I want it's to experience. No, no fun. <laughs> no. So I will um, say it's, it has gotten better, and I am seeing a functional medicine yeah. doctor to try to alleviate the persistent brain fog or reduced cognitive function, as they say. But, you know, some of the other things, like you mentioned, you know, how it might impact my heart, for example, is something that is definitely on top of mind. And I didn't take a K2 supplement every day until we did that show talking about the implications of long COVID um, on long-term health. And then I was like, oh, great. (laughs) I just put all of those on my forms for doctors going forward. Um, I think one of the other things that comes up often, and I know we've addressed this briefly. um, I mean, we did go into it in episode 443, but it is a persistent topic of discussion. And I would say ventures into that myth category where we did have like myth busting episode. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's one of those things where a little bit of information about facts becomes extrapolated and turned into myths. And I would really like to dive into um, the, you know, topic of fertility and menstruation as it relates to COVID-19 vaccines and if those irregularities are something that we're seeing in this particular um, vaccine for children because we're at the 
that pubescent stage, right? Like this, mm-hmm. this age group. And if there's any research or information beyond kind of what we dove into in 443 or any updated science. Um, and I know we have a question from Katie on this, but it's also a question that I know we've both gotten um, from from a lot of different places. And understandably, again, when you're a parent and, you know, you're trying to do everything you can to protect your child and you, you know, hear these um, drastic statements about, you know, something, it's important to kind of understand the the actual facts and what might be the truth and what might be exaggerated or not true at all or, you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. So we have this great question from Katie, and let me let me read it to you to answer both Katie's question and your question at the same time. So Katie wrote, hi to you both. I love the show, and I'm so grateful for the resources you share. I have a question that I'm not sure where to go for answers and thought it might be up your alley. So here goes. I have heard of many women experiencing issues with their period post-COVID vaccine. I am vaccinated, and now that my seven-year-old can be, I am looking for research on why the vaccine impacted some women's periods and if it could impact fertility or menstruation for young kids as they hit puberty. Due to quarantines and wanting to protect my kids, I do want to get them vaccinated, but I also am hoping there is some science on this point. Thank you, Katie. So we talked about the myth of vaccines impacting fertility, as you said, Stacey, in episode 443. So that myth originated by some sequence homology in the spike protein with a protein that's important for the placenta called synstatin-1. And um, we busted that as a mechanism again, in that episode, it turns out the the sequence homology is only about four amino acids long. I don't think we necessarily knew that back when we did that episode, but an antibody uh, binds to a sequence of amino acids, 10 to 15 amino acids long. So four amino acids, the same, that is not going to cause an antibody to, to cross react. So, right. That was the concern was, oh, these, these proteins are similar. If we make antibodies against this protein, it will cross react. And the studies have uh, have since shown again that there's there's no impact on fertility from the COVID nineteen vaccines, but they do legit cause menstrual irregularities. We talked about that in episode four fifty five, and this has now been more studied. There was actually. Um, there's actually a bunch of studies ongoing right now that are looking at um, sort of quantifying it. So I think there's like five studies that have been fu- funded to to help understand this a little bit better. So there's not the data from those studies isn't out yet, um, but it has basically now been confirmed that there is a change in menstruation in menstruating people, and so there's uh, there is a dip- irregularities can take many forms, right? So it can take the form of an early period, a late period, a heavier than normal period, a lighter than normal period. And the the studies that have looked at the relationship between menstrual irregularities and uh, vaccines in the past, because this has been known already to be something that happens from other vaccines like the flu vaccine, the mechanism is through cortisol. So when our immune system is activated, and it can be activated by stress or infection or the immune system activation from a vaccine, uh, that there's crosstalk between the HPA axis and uh, actually 
most hormones in the in the body, thyroid hormones also, um, but also sex hormones. And so that increase in in cortisol that is happening with the immune system and also the dysregulated cortisol because it it tends to not follow its circadian rhythm very well, which is why we can feel really tired, but then not sleep well when we're uh, getting over an infection or, you know, having our side effects from a vaccine as well. Um, so it's it's very well understood that the mechanism is from cortisol, uh, just changing the re- the regulation of uh, follicular stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone, progesterone and estrogen. And so that's a fairly well understood thing that illnesses can pause ovulation. The same thing can happen from vaccination. Um, and it kind of depends exactly what happens, depends on your hormone regulation, when in your cycle you're getting what stimulus, right? So that's why we can basically say it causes menstrual irregularities. So studies do show though from the COVID-19 vaccines that it's transient, uh, that things normalize after a cycle or two. Um, The most relevant that this is for people is if you are a person who could get pregnant but would prefer not to, that this is something to keep in mind that you may want to think about uh, what protection that you're, you're using. Um, if, if that's something that's a a concern for you, um, from a, you know, understanding this effect, I think it's helpful for people to know that it could interfere with your menstrual cycle. Um, there's no, there's no reason why in this mechanism, right. Being mediated through cortisol that you would anticipate that this could, affect puberty itself, right? So, you know, a a transient change in hormones that are actually regulating the cycle aspect of the menstrual cycle will mean there could be some menstrual irregularities, but you wouldn't expect this to cause early puberty or to delay puberty or to, uh, you know, impact the, the broader, you know, regulated a much higher level process of puberty. So for, you know, Katie being worried about, her seven-year-old, you know, I mean, obviously as parents, it's our job to worry about our kids. That is a hundred percent valid. Um, but the, the, I think the important thing to know is that yes, the COVID-19 vaccines can cause menstrual irregularities. Um, they, uh, the study science that's been done so far show that they're transient and the menstrual cycle will settle back down into a rhythm eventually. And that there's no reason to think that that might, uh, impact fertility or change, change anything in terms of when a young kid might hit puberty. I think the most important element of this for me, both in my own personal experience, um, and with long haulers and, you know, something that, um, has been, a learned process for me through all of these vaccine episodes that I wasn't aware of before as a vaccine hesitant person is the mechanism of it being cortisol, right? Like when, when we talk about, you know, a vaccine causing harm and I'm using quotation marks when I am saying that, and we're looking at the, um, is it V-A-E-R-S system? Is that correct? VA. So the VAERS is where you report adverse events, right. and then the VSAFE is where you report side effects. Okay. So 
right, most of the um, information that is put out on the internet as warnings and reasons for avoiding a vaccine can be sourced, are usually sourced from V-A-E-R-E-S um, or potentially V-SAFE. I guess I've never seen that one linked, but the self-reporting system, right? So like I could go on to VA, v, I'm, I don't even know if there's like an VAERS. VAERS. Okay. VAERS? I don't know. I'm like, <laughs> every time I say the <laughs> initials, I'm like pausing to get them right. Okay. The VAERS system, if that's what we're going to call it. Um, I could go on there and I could say anything I wanted about, you know, this, this happened. I broke my leg as we mentioned. Right. Um, and it's the va- vaccine's fault. <clears throat> and then it, goes through a process of, you know, review and vetting, and then people follow up, as you said, Sarah, right? Like, then, then it's, it's further looked into. And so when we look at things like autoimmune activation, or um, menstrual irregularities, which is then extrapolated as fertility issues, which is not, those are different things, right? But it's extrapolated Mm -hmm. that way. Or, you know, the variety of other things that you may have heard of, either as an adult or for children, um, one of the most important things that I really learned through all of these shows as a vaccine hesitant person, and so I want to really emphasize it, is the idea that we're putting a stress on our bodies. And it's a choice that you're making to put that stress on your body or not. And, you know, the choice that I made, that Sarah made, that we talk about is because the, the likelihood of receiving the stress without the vaccine versus with the vaccine is the reason that we put the stress on our body for, you know, COVID-19, for example. Um, And I think one of the things to really kind of understand about all of these, you know, symptoms and side effects and everything that we're doing is that we are trusting that our bodies know how to fight something because that's that's a, a phrase that I've heard used a lot, right? It's actually how a vaccine works is because you are trusting your body to build an immune response based on a safe, a, you know, a scientifically tested safe way to do that. And while we might see side effects like, for example, a menstrual irregularity because you cause stress on your body, that doesn't mean that the vaccine is harming you. In fact, your body is building a stress response in reaction to the vaccine to create immunity. And if you think about that logically, it totally makes sense that if you're sick, that your your body is saying now's not a good time to get pregnant. Like yeah. that, that to me is like, oh, my body is doing a good, like that makes total sense. But the way that it's phrased and positioned in, you know, communities who um, are, you know, taking this information and, and maybe not pulling it all the way through the way that I am right now, um, yeah, I, I don't want to say, you know, are intentionally being harmful because I do think that there's a lot of inf- a lot of people who aren't intentionally doing that. And I do think that there are some who are, um, you know, clickbait or, you know, whatever. But I, I do think that there's a, a genuine concern and I get that. And I would just ask that people kind of like logically pull it through a little bit, because um, if you're making a a decision to introduce a calculated risk to your system, right? Like you're introducing a virus to your system with the understanding that there is extensive 
research and science that has gone into, you know, safety and efficacy for this, that it might, you know, it, there are people who say like a vaccine triggered an, an autoimmune response, for example, and we covered that, you know, in, in some of our earlier shows, because what it's actually doing is creating that stress response in your system that was really going to show in some other way anyway, whether it's via pregnancy or, you know, um, exposure to, you know, a different kind of um, immune response, like a toxin or, you know, whatever. Most of the time, autoimmune is activated by a stress on the body. And it could be a vaccine that is the stress. But that doesn't mean that, like, the vaccine caused the autoimmune disease. And we walked through that early on. And it was really a light bulb moment for me that I want to reiterate here on these, you know, updated shows, and especially as we talk about with kids, because, you know, I would never as a parent do anything that I thought was putting you know, my children at risk. And as I mentioned, I'm not the legal guardian for one of my children. And I was advocating really a lot for that child to get a vaccine when it was available. And understandably, the state and DSS had not yet approved children to receive the vaccine, even though they were eligible because they were doing their due diligence and making sure and getting approvals and all that kind of stuff. And it was then decided a few weeks later um, that the authorization and approval came through and, you know, that child was then vaccinated. But, you know, I've kind of like looked at this from all different perspectives. And I think from, from me, if that's the stressor that causes, you know, an autoimmune response, for example, or, um, you know, a menstrual irregularity, and I compare that to, okay, well, that autoimmune response is going to hit this person's, um, my functional medicine doctor said, you know, oftentimes she sees these um, stress responses in people who have like a parent die or who get divorced or who like move or change jobs, right? Like it doesn't even have to be like a physical um, stress on the body. It can also be like these life life events that are super stressful is when autoimmune arrives. And I just, I want to like remind people of that because I think that um, it's, it's taken so out of context and, and vilified and demonized and, as a, an intelligent person, I consider myself an intelligent person, um, it was convincing for me early on to be very, very vaccine hesitant and avoidant. And um, I've learned so much through these shows that I really am so grateful to you, Sarah, for all the time and effort that you've put into them, but also from taking a real scientific approach and, and instead of, you know, you're either pro-vax or you're anti-vax and there's nothing in between. And it's like, why, why are we, why do we need to be so polarized like that? Because looking just at the facts and the information and educating on that, I felt so empowered to learn and make decisions myself and um, without it being, you know, politicized or demonized or, or anything like that. And I, I just want to make sure people like fully understand that because when you said the mechanism is cortisol, I'm like, that's, it's, I know it's like, three or four words, but they're so big and so important. And I just really wanted to emphasize it. No. And I'm so glad you did because I think, um, you know, I think it's a normal response to be nervous or fearful or hesitant. And I think it's one of the reasons why we have committed so much 
of our, you know, show to covering COVID-19 and covering the vaccines is because we know how many of our listeners have questions and are looking to us for those sort of balanced science grounded answers. And I think framing the cost benefit analysis in that way of, you know, it is an intentional stress that we're putting on our bodies to protect ourselves from a potential much bigger stress uh, that could be much more problematic for our long-term health in the future is, I think, a really helpful way to think about it. Because I think, you know, it's especially in the current, I don't want to say media environment, it's the internet environment where there is a lot of misinformation that is presented in a way that makes it really hard to identify as misinformation out there. And it certainly makes what we're doing on this podcast a lot more challenging to have to kind of wade through and fact check and then find the original citations and then find the the resources and dig through to to find the the what is the right what is the grain of scientific truth that drove this myth to to become as pervasive as it is um, and then what is the what is the actual science that shows that this is a myth and not actually a truth? And that is something we've tried to do on this show is, you know, bust those myths and and do so with with evidence and a um, hopefully really honest and like, here's the science and here's here's all the facts so that our listeners can feel empowered with knowledge to make the best choice for them. And I I. Um, I mean, I guess we try to do that with all of the topics we cover, but it it feels really important when we're talking about uh, COVID-19 just because it is, you know, again, we're recording this as the Omicron variant is uh, has been identified, but yet we still don't know anything about it. But there's a lot of very, um, uh, you know, headlines and uh, social media posts that amount to, uh, you know, running around in a circle screaming um, in, in panic. And I think the best way that we can inure ourselves to misinformation and fear mongering is with knowledge and information. And so that's, that's what we're here to do. Yeah, it's a really good picture uh, that you just painted about like um, social media posts and articles because um, I've also been following um, educators about you know the the way in which this is positioned, right? And it's not just about COVID nineteen; it's about like any sort of thing that you listen to. If you saw, you know, Omicron exists in South Africa, we're not sure. Uh, what we we don't yet have data would you would you click that or would you click the article that's like you know um, america shuts down travel and omicron is worst variant yet you know like people create the title of articles on purpose to get you to click onto their article because they they want your traffic they you know, it's, it's a for-profit company, almost all news sources are, and therefore they need your attention to 
profit and continue to go on. And the way that the market has been, it just needs, it's more competitive and more competitive for the more dramatic, you know, um, click baby type things. Yeah. And so it has made me as a user more aware as to where I'm getting my news articles, right? So I actually listen to um, like nonprofit news sources as often as possible or people who report news from, there's a, a place called All Sides um, and they position like the, the um, news in terms of like how far left-leaning or right-leaning things are. And there are news sources who fall directly in the center. And those are the news sources that I try to follow because they tend to be less exaggerated in their approach and the information that they share. And so if you find yourself overwhelmed with these kinds of information that feel, you know, overwhelming or um, that we're calling myths and you didn't realize was a myth because you thought it was fact or, you know, whatever the case may be, I would suggest just like we talk about with, you know, social justice and diet culture and different kinds of things you know, reframing where you're getting that information or who you're following and do they fall into that category of trying to create the chaos that Sarah mentioned because it, you know, causes you to click and, and stay in that whirlwind or are you genuinely getting content that serves you and that, you know, is clear and factual with, you know, sources that are not the VAERS system, sources that are, you know, clinical studies and published, uh, you know, on the PubMed and different things like that. That's where I want to get my information from. So I would suggest if you find yourself in that boat as someone who is also kind of having these fears and hesitancies, it helped, it has helped me tremendously. Me too. <laughs> so All right, hopefully- we made it. Yeah, I'm like, hopefully uh, this is our last COVID-19 vaccine show for at least a few weeks. No. Why, why do you, listen, <laughs> at when least you, a few weeks. When you say that. I know, <laughs> there's going to be some guarantee. huge, huge new study published no. this afternoon. Yeah, that's, that's kind of how it works over here. Well, I will say that we will be having at least a few weeks of lighter topics for Sarah, who has done so much research over her Thanksgiving holiday to be able to pull this together. So thank you so much, Sarah. And if you want to hear what we really thought and more about, you know, our personal experiences, we'll be doing that over on patreon.com slash the whole view. Even if you don't even want that extra content and you just want to support us and show some appreciation for the effort that goes into this, we produce all these podcasts ourselves, and it's a wonderful way to kind of like give us a high five or buy us a cup of coffee um, to support the Patreon. We appreciate every single one of you who are members of our community. It's also a great way to ask questions and speak to us directly. We answer everything that's put over there, all the comments and questions that come in the inbox. So we would love to welcome you to our Patreon community. But if that's not for you, no problem. We'll be back again next week. Thanks for listening. We love providing the Whole View podcast for you as a free resource. You can support the show by using the links and codes we share in our podcast. And we love to read your reviews and chats wherever you listen. And don't forget to share our podcast with your friends and family. Speaking of chat, did you know that you can get exclusive behind the scenes content on Patreon? When you support us with your Patreon membership, you get access to live Q&As and weekly bonus audio but they're not for kids' ears because our bonus content is explicit. 
You can also stay in touch with us via our social media channels. I'm at Real Everything Blog. And I'm at The Paleo Mom. And we've got more great resources on our websites and in our newsletters. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.